we invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back to the book of Colossians this evening. Colossians, we're going to look at several different sections of the book, so you can just open it to chapter 1 and we'll go from there. Over Christmas and New Year's, our family had the opportunity to do something new. We didn't even know there was such a thing, uh, but we had the opportunity to work on an escape puzzle. You know, there's escape rooms and all different kinds of things. I think I heard about a game or something that was an escape-type game, and there's escape boxes, and there's all these different things. Now, have any of you ever done an escape puzzle? Okay, well, we set out to work on this escape puzzle, and uh, according to the best puzzle theory, you are supposed to start with the edge pieces, right? Uh, At least that's the way I grew up. Maybe that's not the best. I don't know, but... We started looking at this puzzle, started working through the edge pieces, and evidently with the escape puzzle, there are clues hidden in the picture that's created by the puzzle, and then you have to kind of work your way through the clues to figure out how you solve this escape puzzle. And so we're working through the edges, and it's a little bit unique, a little bit different. You can already kind of tell that. Uh, Some of the pieces have numbers printed on them, and uh, many of the pieces are cut the exact same way which is incredibly frustrating uh, when you're doing puzzles because you begin to realize that all of these shades in that puzzle of like blues, blacks, grays uh, can be interchangeable. And uh, what started out as like, hey, this is going to be fun, turns into a frustration and then a challenge where you're like, even though I'm frustrated, I have to conquer this, Uh, can't let this go kind of thing. And uh, yet, as we got into it further, realized some of the problems, not just the fact that the edge pieces are the same, but that the puzzle picture is different than the puzzle on the box picture. There are differences. Like, there's a lot of similarity, but it's not exactly the same. That's not fair. Okay? And if... If you've done an escape puzzle similar to the one that we did, the other thing that was a little bit unique about it is that while the picture on the box was a little bit different than the picture on the puzzle, the picture on the box was like zoomed in where the outside border was not pictured on the box, but that's where we started. So you're trying to form this outside box that's not actually pictured on the picture. Now, eventually, somehow, I don't remember, five, six hundred pieces, anybody remember? Uh, Eventually, it all got put together, and while we did not figure it out the technically right way, uh, we did come to an answer you were supposed to figure out in the puzzle along the way. I want to use that as an analogy to what we're going to attempt to do tonight in working through Colossians. When we work through a book like this, often in just the habit of maybe how your pastor operates or maybe the way you're wired or maybe the way that you read your Bible, uh, we kind of begin to zoom in and go, oh, let's look at that verse, or let's look at those two verses, or even let's look at that chapter. And there's value in all of that. There really is. But sometimes we miss the themes that go chapter to chapter to chapter. We kind of miss the big picture of what's going on in the puzzle. 
In fact, I was thinking about it a few moments ago on the platform. One of my kids, in order to help us solve the escape aspect of this, had a sheet of paper and was writing out all the clues that they would find along the way. Like, okay, there are green eyes over here and blue eyes over here, and this number is written on this tree, and this number is written over here. And they were keeping track of the clues in hopes that this kind of aggregate list would help us figure out whatever it is that we were supposed to figure out. I can say it this way, it may be helpful to you tonight to just jot a couple thoughts down because we're going to be in Colossians, and really tonight we're putting the edge pieces in place, and I don't know how long it will be that we'll work on filling in the middle, okay? But I don't want us to lose sight as we begin to fill in the middle of what we talked about at the beginning as to what the edge pieces, if you will, were. Last week when we were together and we started into the book of Colossians, we noted that the book is an imprisoned messenger writing to faithful believers. We have Paul, the apostle, this God-appointed, authoritative messenger writing to a church, writing to believers that he's actually never met, but he's heard about them. He's heard good things about them through a pastor, but he also recognizes that they are in spiritual danger. And so he's going to write to them to admonish them about that danger, but also to encourage them in what they're doing well and how they can continue on based on uh, their salvation in Jesus Christ. So we looked at the writer as an imprisoned messenger, and then we looked at the readers as faithful believers. And just want to simply remind you when you come to verse 2 as to four thoughts that we touched on about them. We said spiritually, they're consecrated to God. They're they're saints. They're God's holy ones. They're devoted. What a wonderful statement for them, but equally true to anybody who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, where we are his holy ones, declared to be righteous through Jesus Christ. We said not only are they spiritually consecrated to God, practically they're continuing in the faith. They're described as faithful. They believe and continue to believe. We went from there to say, relationally, they're brothers in Christ. They're part of the family of God, and geographically, they're located in Colossae, this realm that to an extent dictates uh, what life looks like for them. Uh, And I think even as we, some things we come to tonight touch on that. We almost sometimes forget what it would be like to live in the Greco-Roman world, this world out of which things like the Olympics come a little bit prior to that time, uh, where we can look back and say, here's... Uh, just this celebration of excellence of what a human can accomplish on the field. Or to say, no, here's our philosophers. Here's what the mind can engage. Here's what the mind can think about and do. And even as we studied through Acts, we glimpsed that to an extent as Paul interacts with the philosophers at Mars Hill. These people are in the city of Colossae. That unique environment, but as I pointed you to last week, they're said not just to be in Colossae, they are more importantly in Christ. That dictates their identity more than where they live geographically. So we spent time looking at the readers as faithful believers saying, here's the description we are given, and tonight we're going to look at the danger they were facing. Now, maybe a little bit towards the end as to when we get to some actual descriptions of what that danger is, is we're going to spend time introducing it first, but I want you to realize that as we read the book of Colossians, there is an inherent danger facing the believers that the Spirit of God through Paul is combating for them. 
However, one of the delightful things, if you will, about the book of Colossians is that the tone is not like many other books where the church is facing a danger. So, for example, if you go to the book of Galatians, there's a danger there, a serious danger there. And yet the tone in Galatians is one of strong rebuke, almost similar to like Corinthians, but maybe Galatians a step further, more strong than Corinthians. That is not the case in Colossians. It seems as we come to this book that Paul is writing to believers who are threatened by this danger, but they have not yet bought into this danger. He's just saying, hey, watch out. Do not be led away from Jesus Christ. You're rooted in him. You're built up in him. You're established in him. You need to continue in him. Just watch out. And again, in this room, there can be individuals who it's like, you know what, I'm not actually buying into the dangers of our day, but they are threatening. Or maybe there would be some here who's like, actually, as we work through this, yeah, I realize there is an error in my thought, an error in my belief that way. But the tone here is different than others that uh, speak to this danger. But I, I would have you keep in mind, how does Paul know what they're facing? We saw this briefly last week. He knows because he's heard about them through Epaphras, who helped start the church there. Where Colossae is to where Paul is in Rome is at least a thousand-mile journey. And Epaphras has made that journey and talked to Paul about what's going on, where it is concerning enough that the Spirit of God through Paul has them write back and say, hey, watch out for this, watch out for this, watch out for this, but stay rooted in this, continue in this, understand this, and live this way. If we wanted to state it very generally, the issue at stake answers questions like, where is fullness of life found? How do you find satisfaction in life? Where's meaning found? What do you need to know? Maybe you got to know a little more, and if you just know a little bit more, then life will be complete, it will be full. Or if you just do these things, if you just take it to the next level in what you're doing, life will be satisfying at that point. It'll have meaning at that point. Those are some of the ideas that Paul is wrestling with, inspired by the Spirit of God here. And again, it's not like we go, oh, you know what? That section is exactly found in chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. You're just right there. There are hints that we pick up along the way as we work our way through the book. Now, admittedly, many of them are in chapter 2, but if you have to understand where they show up in chapter 1 and even in chapters 3 and 4 as well. As we begin looking at the danger that they were facing, first, let's look at the introductory statement of greeting, where he comes down, he says, grace be unto you, end of verse 2, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we touch this with different things in these opening parts of epistles, but sometimes we're real quick to run past these and go, okay, yep, yeah, and we almost treat them as though they're meaningless because they're so commonplace. Uh, like sometimes we can walk into church, how's it going? Fine. How's it going for you? Fine. And we don't even stop to think, like, is it really fine? Is it not fine? Or we, we do this with the Lord too, where we start to pray, Lord, thank you for this day, and we didn't even stop to like think about what we said. Now, like, it is a good thing for us to pray and thank the Lord that he's given us life, that another day is in front of us, that it has an opportunity to serve him. 
but we need to actually think about what's being said. Again, we might say, the Lord bless you, God bless you. We don't stop to think, what does that actually mean? The Spirit of God put these words in Scripture for a purpose. In fact, in many ways, that simple declaration at the beginning is the antidote to what the Colossians are facing. It is the answer. You need God's grace. You need his undeserved goodness. You need his undeserved goodness. You need his unmerited favor, both through God the Father and through the Son, Jesus Christ, the work that he's done for you in the gospel. You need that grace. In fact, that one is important. It comes, it's almost the bookend of this entire letter. You go ahead to Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. What does he say? Grace be with you all. That's where he ends. He begins and ends with grace. Don't miss that. That's true for you and me as we head into life this week to say, Lord, I need your grace. Lord, as I look at my brothers and sisters that have gathered together at church, would your grace be present in their life? Your undeserved goodness to them. That divine enablement that they would be able to fight against sin. That they would be able to share the gospel that they would be able to function in their home the way God intends. Grace be to them, grace be to me, this undeserved goodness, this unmerited favor. But he also says, and peace. In essence saying, may, may you have the complete wholeness that can only be found through Jesus Christ. You think about that idea, particularly from a Jewish mindset of shalom, where there's wholeness there. Often the way we've described it here is everything is right so that rest is possible. I could illustrate it this way. At times, not all the time, but at times in our house, uh, we get ready to go to bed at night and there are dishes in the sink or there is laundry in the dryer and it's okay for it to stay there. Sometimes it does. But there are other times where it's not okay. And it's like, you know what, before we go to bed, the dishes in the sink have to be washed, dried, put away. The trash that's full has to be emptied so that everything's right and rest is possible. Now, again, there's probably differing perspectives in this room, like there's differing perspectives even in my household as to how that works, right? But you get it. It's like, you know what? If everything's right, rest is possible. It's, peace is there. Paul through the Spirit of God, is saying, not only would you have this undeserved goodness from God, but would everything also be right so that you're whole, you're complete, you're satisfied through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just remind you, we've walked through a time where there's been a lot of agitation, maybe still is. There's all kinds of things that stir us up Get us agitated, get us irritated, get us depressed, get us worried, get us fearful. It's like, you know, ultimately, what satisfies? What completes? Where do you find goodness? Where do you find wholeness? Really, Colossians is reminding us that we find it in Christ. Paul wants them to understand they have been made 
complete in Jesus Christ. That's chapter 2, verse 10. And on that basis, he wants them to understand that they need to continue to walk in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6. Furthermore, he wants to explain what it looks like that if you indeed are complete in Christ and you've been risen with Christ, then here's how you live. You seek those things which are above. Chapter 3, verse 1, verse 2. You set your affection, not on the things here on earth, like you don't get hung up on everything going on here and now because you will be disappointed. Don't live for here, live for there. He's telling them where you find goodness, where you find wholeness is through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator said it this way, I shared it with some of you earlier this week, but he said it this way, When Christians do not live with a deep sense of gratitude for what God has done for them in Christ, they will become engulfed in anxieties and will be tempted to look for security in something other than Christ. We could say this true peace is only found in being rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. So I would ask you to think through what is it for believers today What is it for you today that gets us off track from finding our satisfaction or completeness in Jesus Christ? You know, we could categorically describe certain sins like pride or worry or fear or self-empowerment. Those are all true. But there are many things circumstantially. There are many things daily in our activities You know, very frankly, if we're not careful, and this shows up in Colossians, we'll see it in just a moment, sometimes religious activity actually becomes a distraction from completeness in Jesus Christ. When we feel like, I got to do, 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 instead of realizing actually Christ has done for you all you need. And when you see that, then you can joyfully serve because it's already accomplished. It's like, no, 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 I must because if I don't, God won't be happy. No, we got it wrong. Or maybe it's not just religious activity, it's self-restraint. Well, i got, I got to check myself back. and I, I, Self-restraint is good. He's going to touch that in chapter 3. But you know, certainly there are so many other areas we could go to to remind ourselves satisfaction, completeness is not found in our bank account. It's not found in efforts for societal reform. It's not found in who our president or our governor or any other political officer is. It is not found in whether I have to wear a mask or don't have to wear a mask. It's not found if there's a vaccine or there's not a vaccine. It's not found in how soon can I return to normal life. It's not found in the behavior of those around me. It's not found in good relationships. You know, if I was just married or if I just wasn't married, if I just had kids, if I just didn't have kids, if I just had obedient kids, then I... Right? But we go there. Life would be good if. Life would be complete if. Life would be satisfying if, if my coworkers just, if my boss just. You know what? For a Christian, grace and peace comes from a different source. Satisfaction, completeness, wholeness comes from a different source. It is only found in Jesus Christ. Having looked at this introductory statement of greeting, secondly, I want us to see a general summary of the content. A general summary of the content. Like many books in the New Testament, chapters 1 and 2 
are largely focused on instruction. There are a few commands of warning scattered in, but it is largely instruction in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4 mark a shift and predominantly then focus on application, commands, imperatives. Here's what you need to do. And we've talked about this often, but I'll remind you yet again that so often uh, we can run past like chapters 1 and 2 and go, so just tell me what I need to do. And that's where you get to chapters 3 and 4. Like you want to talk about what does it look like in your workplace? You go to chapters 3 and 4. What does it look like in your home? You go to chapter 3. What, what should we do when it comes to singing? You go to chapter 3. What do I need to put on? What do I need to put off? You go to chapter 3. And we're very quick to go, like, just practically tell me what I got to do. But it is based on the why of chapters 1 and 2. And we can't miss that why. I mean, chapter 1, Paul presents a glorious view of Jesus Christ. Here is who Jesus Christ is. And I'm afraid that, like, for many of us to go, oh, yeah, he's the firstborn of all creation. Oh, yeah, by him all things were made. By him all things consist. Yep, he's creator. He's sustainer. I got it. Yep. And we don't stop to think on that, to meditate on that, to consider, even as we talked about in Hebrews, if you're with us on Wednesday nights, to go, you know, I need to really consider who Jesus Christ is and what it means to have life in him to then begin to live out what chapters 3 and 4 tell me. I mean, in chapter 1, Paul presents this glorious Christology while praying that the believers would walk worthy of him. Chapter 2, he continues that glorious Christology while warning believers against this danger that they're facing. He's going to point to the supremacy of Christ again. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he says, now let's talk about how we live in Christ. Jesus is the focal point. We, you know, we've only in actual text words covered, like verse 1 and verse 2, and yet we talked last week four times in those two verses, it's about Jesus. And that doesn't stop as we keep moving forward. It is about Jesus. Because one of the things that you'll see in the danger is that Jesus' work is being undermined. In fact, you could say it this way. I think this is a good summary way to think about it. The sufficiency of Jesus' work is being undermined in the danger they are facing. That is why he says you are complete in him. But it is not just the sufficiency of Jesus' work that is being undermined. It is the humanity of Jesus' person that is also being questioned. We'll see that more in just a moment. The humanity of Jesus' person. Was Jesus really a human person? And then on top of that, it's not just the sufficiency of Jesus' work and the humanity of Jesus' person, but it's also the deity of Jesus' character. Is he really God? Which is why we're going to come to statements in chapter 2 when we get there, and we're going to be told, when it's speaking of Jesus, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. Like, you want to know what complete deity looks like? Look at Jesus. Which again, in the Greco-Roman world with a pantheon of, pantheon of gods is quite a statement. They have thousands of gods. But you want to know what all the fullness of God looks like? Look at Jesus. And then he says, bodily. Whoa! In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, bodily. 
He's going to point to the sufficiency of Jesus' work, the humanity of Jesus' person, and the deity of Jesus' character because it's under attack. And again, we could point to so much religious thought in our day that seeks to undermine all three of those areas as well. It is Jesus plus. It is what I don't really think Jesus would. And we're not going to the Bible. We're just sharing, here's what I think, instead of here's what the text says. So far, we've looked at an introductory statement of greeting and a general summary of the content. Finally, we finally get to a characteristic survey of the danger. A characteristic survey of the danger. We're going to look at that through four summary appeals that are addressed through the book. We probably could break these out even further, but I'm going to state them to you as though I were arguing for the danger, okay, because it kind of helps us understand them a little bit, I think, helps us see them personally, applicably in our day as well. This danger, again, keep in mind, seeks to lead them away from the gospel and Jesus, Life is not complete unless there's something more. You can't be satisfied unless there's more. And again, you get to sections like Colossians 1 verse 23. It says, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. He's like, listen, if this is real faith, you have to persist in that faith. You have to continue in that faith. You can't be led astray down a road that takes you away from Jesus Christ. Appeal number one, as we have this look at this characteristic survey of the danger, is this. Worship synthetically. Worship synthetically. If you're into more technical terms, I'll say this is the danger of syncretism. It's the danger of syncretism. If something's marked as synthetic, we recognize it to be man-made. Someone's taken different elements, maybe it's materials, you know, fabrics, chemicals, liquids, all these different things. Someone's taken them, combined them together to produce a synthetic uh, product. Again, within Greco-Roman culture, very frequent to say, you know what, let's grab some leaves from here and over here and over here, and let's just bring them all into our pantheon of gods. We live in a culture full of people, absolutely full of people that are synthetic believers. They are syncretistic in their worship. Well, I kind of think this over here, and I kind of think this over here, and I kind of feel this way over here. My view of God is this way, and I, well, I kind of think this, and I think God would tolerate that, and I really don't think this sin is that bad. It is a very narrow person who goes, I just believe what the book says. It's a very narrow person. And Paul is writing to people who have a synthetic or who are facing the danger of a synthetic worship. You know, anytime you begin to mix ideas, they can't stay together. Sides begin to polarize. It's like the oil and water kind of separating out, if you will. And what's going to become clear as you see what this means in Colossians is you have an element of religious Jews that are pulling one way, and you have an element of pagan people that are pulling in another way. 
And this is nothing new in the New Testament. I mean, go back to our study in Acts. Look at Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. The Jews are saying the Gentiles have to be circumcised. Gentiles are saying no. And even when you look at the end product coming out of the Jerusalem Council, there are pagan practices that is like that is forbidden, that is sin, that is wrong, but there is also some concession made to the conscience of the Jews because they're struggling with what's being brought all together. And that becomes apparent as we work our way through the book of Colossians. Colossians is not going to condone the legalism of the Jews, nor is it going to condone the license, if you will, of the Gentiles or the pagans. And again, I would encourage you to be on guard in the culture we live in. The things that you read online, the things that you hear on TV, the conversations with coworkers that I hope do occur, where it is full of, let's just mix a bunch of ideas together. Don't do that. Stick to what the Word says. True Christianity has to be on guard against the appeal to worship synthetically. Second appeal made by the danger of the book of Colossians is to concentrate philosophically. Not just worship synthetically, but concentrate philosophically. This is the, name, the danger of what is known historically as Gnosticism, or some people call it philosophical dualism. It is the idea that what is material is bad, and what is immaterial is good. So bodies are bad, but spirits and what you can know is good. Okay, It's this strange dualistic mindset, which is why as we talked about just a minute ago, the idea that Jesus, that God would come bodily is absolutely unacceptable. But then what do we do with Jesus? Well, if he was here and he was kind of a man and he's in a body, well, he, he, certainly God can't fully be in a body, but then God can't be a person at all because that's bad. And so they relegate him to kind of this spirit realm as though he's an emanation from God similar to angels in nature. Foreign to us, But for the Colossians, that's why Paul is going to say, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily format. And again, for us, the issues might look a little different to say, well, I I don't think he's really God or in our society at large. But you catch Paul arguing against this in passages like chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Don't let people think, don't let people make you think that there's something deeper to be understood out there. There's something higher to be known. It's kind of a secret, but if you just get on the inside, then you'll get it. Again, the issues are different in our day. But Christianity has battled this kind of stuff all through its history. I was thinking back this week in study to, I think I've shared with you the Bible code thing that was kind of a trend back in the 90s. To go, you know what, if you count every 632nd letter through this particular book of the Bible and then you go the last three letters backwards, you'll find out that this was foretold. Like, well, actually, studies and statistics will show you that happens in lots of different kinds of literature. It's just the way it is. Okay? But maybe a little more close to home, 
Christians are prone to all kinds of causes and conspiracy theories that eventually become higher priorities, become more predominant points of conversation than the gospel and God's word. And you say, well, the, the news over there is lying, but I believe the news over here. You know what? None of it matters. If we're focused on Christ, none of it changes. Like, we've walked through a year where I have never seen so many things show up where it's like, is this true or is this true? It's like, I don't know. But I know this, the mission of my life has not changed or should not have changed in the last 12 months for any of us because we can't be led away from Jesus Christ. He is our goal. He is preeminent. We are complete in him. But it becomes very easy for us to go, you know what, let's read prophecy. Let's read today's events into the prophetic sections of the Bible. You know what, no man knows the time or the hour. We're closer today than we were, Paul was. We're closer today than we were five years ago. When? Soon. How soon? Soon. Okay? I was talking to someone, I was talking to my brother. I'll go ahead and tell you who I was talking to my brother earlier this week. He used to be like, you mean March 4th? I have no idea why he picked March 4th. I looked it up. I figured out why. You can look it up on your own if you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay? Like, that's nonsense. Well, what if it's true? It doesn't matter if I'm a Christian. My priorities don't change at all. But sometimes, oh, there's something deeper out there to know. There's just more out there to know. Don't let those things lead you away from Jesus Christ. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And it could be that many times good Christian people seeking to please the Lord, we've confused promises God made to Israel for our country. They don't apply in the same way. God hasn't given us a land which he has promised to bless if we'll just rest it every 50 years. Right? We don't want to be led away from Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. Jesus is Savior. Keep your mind there. You're complete in him. Grace and peace comes from him. For them, the temptation was to be led away to these philosophical thoughts, this deeper knowledge that if you're just a part of and you can get detached from this material world, then you'll be satisfied. No amount of Googling, no amount of internet research, no matter amount of surfing social media provides the hope for life. In fact, it probably fights against satisfaction in Christ quite a bit. The danger makes these appeals, worship synthetically, concentrate philosophically. Third, live restrictively. Live restrictively. This is a fascinating one in the book. And again, we're just kind of putting the edge pieces in. We're not doing the whole picture. We're going to walk through the whole picture. But there's two competing elements that show up in the book that are you to live restrictively. One is Judaistic legalism. I mean, we should expect this with the amount of time we spend in the New Testament. Here come the Jews adding laws that the church has to keep. But in Colossians, there's not just Judaistic, uh, Judaistic legalism there is religious asceticism, something that's more pagan in nature, that's arguing for additional restrictive practices that don't seem to fit with the Jews and their traditions. Again, some are connected to Old Testament law, some are connected to the traditional teaching of the Jewish religious leaders, and others are broader. 
I'm not going to take the time to run through it, but if you want to mark a section, you look at Colossians 2, verses 12 through 23 with this thought of living restrictively. You find issues of eat this, don't eat this, be circumcised, recognize this religious holiday, keep this special feast day, keep the Sabbath, don't touch this, don't handle this. Here's all these do's and don'ts of what you have to do. And Paul's saying, don't get hung up on those things. You know, some of us, if we're honest, are wired that way. When you're a conscientious believer and someone comes along and says, I don't think you should, it's like, ooh, I better not. And the question is, for what reason should you not? It might very well be that you should not. But the best way to know if you should or you shouldn't is what? You go to the Scriptures. And if God says, then you better not. But if God doesn't say, then that's extra. That's a conscience issue. Here, Paul is going to combat. And again, you see it very strongly. Just look at 2.16 as an example. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. He's going to continue on through the rest. I mean, he's going to tell him, why are you subject to ordinances? I thought you were set free from those later on in the chapter. But there is clearly this appeal that is endangering the Colossian believers to live restrictively. Again, nothing new. We see that in Galatians just as well. We see it in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Finally, the last appeal. Three appeals so far, worship synthetically, concentrate philosophically, live restrictively, and then fourth is focus supernaturally. This is the danger of mysticism. Danger of mysticism. You see an example of it in 2.18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility of worshiping angels. Like, don't let anybody lead you astray to think that this is a good thing. And it goes back to kind of that weird philosophical thought that I touched earlier that angelic beings and even Jesus are emanations coming from the Godhead, not fully God themselves, but certainly worthy of our respect and worthy of our worship. And while you might go, that's strange, that's not where I'm at, I think you can see there's a propensity culturally to get that. I mean, we went through that fad, like when I was in later high school, where there were plenty of TV shows out there that were going to tell you about angels, right? Like, let's watch this. But there is always this appeal of this mystic element that's out there culturally, whether it be the force or Mother Nature or angels or whatever it may be, to say, oh, you know, there's just something out there supernaturally, ambiguously, whereas biblically we go, well, Let's stick to what God in his word says. Once again, the Colossian believers are facing the mixing of religious thought with an emphasis placed on philosophy, restrictive living, and the supernatural. Okay, they're facing an, uh, this mixing of religious thought with a mixing of philosophy, restrictive living, and the supernatural. What's Paul's answer? It is to focus on Jesus Christ. I want us to get that priority very clearly because, again, I'm somewhat uh, worried that we get into chapter 1. It's like, okay, yeah, I know this about Jesus. I know this about Jesus. Why? Because if you move away from him, 
You are in spiritual danger. He, Paul wants them to understand, in him, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him, you are complete. So you better walk with him, and if you're raised with him, you're going to seek these things which are above in him. Here's what it looks like in your workplace. Here's what it looks like in your home. Here's what it looks like as you gather for worship as he works his way through chapters 3 and 4. Our day is different. And in the complexity of our day with all of its appeals, I mean, there's almost this cacophony of appeals. In the midst of all of that, our focus is the same. It doesn't matter what's going on societally, politically, culturally, medically. Our focus is on Jesus Christ. It has to be. He is preeminent. So we want to live for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we've gone to your word this evening, I ask that it would be a help to each one of us in helping us understand the book of Colossians as we prepare to continue working our way through it. But Lord, more than informing us intellectually, I pray that it would motivate us personally to rejoice in what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And not just to rejoice, but actually then to walk worthy of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, again, it's humbling to realize that in spite of our rebellion, while we were prisoners belonging to a foreign kingdom, you saw fit through the work of your son to bring us into your kingdom through his work. Lord, I pray that we bring glory to you as a result. Keep us, protect us from danger. It's in Jesus' name we pray.